That smooth Christian jazz you're hearing means you've tuned in to Same Old Song, the lectionary podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm your co-host, Aaron Zimmerman. I'll be joined by Jacob Smith as each week we break down the lectionary readings for the upcoming Sunday to give you something to think about, and if you're a preacher, to give you something to preach about, and no matter who you are, to give you a connection to the never-changing message of God's grace for actual people like you. Unzip that monogrammed faux leather Bible carrying case and cover, pull up a chair, and let's dig in. Well, Jake, it's the end of June, and it means we are on vacation, getting ready to go on vacation. Sad that we're not on vacation, but we still got to preach or have somebody else preach. Uh, and so this is when we get into some uh, pretty good passages. But before we do, let me just check in. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thank you for asking. Uh, beautiful June so far here in New York City. And, um, you know, the weather's not m- muggy outside at all. It's a perfect day for some rosé. So anyway, as they say, and so... And I think here in New York, we deserve it. We deserve a rosé day. So, yeah. So, how are you doing, man? I'm doing all right. I noticed that I, I have my top button unbuttoned of my button-down shirt. You have the top button buttoned. And uh, just knowing that you live in New York and I live in Texas, it must be the cool thing to button it all the way up to the top. Not at all. I just didn't want you looking down my shirt. So, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Seeing all that gorgeous chest hair spilling yeah, out. Just my give main, our readers so. a visual that they will not be able to get out of their heads. All right. So, mm, let's... For weeks. Speak, so. Speaking of hairy there, men... That, that could be a sermon illustration. So, anyway, but I'm... Uh, yeah. If, uh, if you want a really good um, humorous sermon look up Google Esau was an hairy man, and there's an old uh, English uh, Mm. sketch about that. Anyways, uh, let's talk about the hairy people in the book of Genesis. Uh, We've got three readings today, as always, as we get ready to preach for the fourth Sunday after Pentecost. If you're doing track one, which is what we're doing, uh, we'll help you out. If you're doing track two, you're on your own. But as far as the Old Testament goes, we got Genesis 22, the Abraham sacrificing Isaac. Psych! He doesn't actually die. Uh, passage in Genesis 22, and then we move on to Romans 6. Paul's continuing his explanation of his understanding of sin and righteousness and free will and sanctification and all that stuff because he's been charged with being weak on sanctification and letting people getting away with sin. Clutch your pearls, lock your door. Paul's going to let people get away with everything, or is he? And then we have a very short mm. passage in Matthew chapter 10, because the lectionary people know that geez, that people are already tired after a long Genesis reading and a long Romans reading. <laughs> That's true. Um, the, uh, you know, I think it's very important, too, because it, this, uh, especially the Genesis reading really fits into the, the collect of the day. Um, in the Episcopal Church, we uh, pray, Almighty God, you've built your church upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. I think that that's a very, very important illustration, you know, that that people tend to to forget. Um, All of the law and the prophets, all of the Old Testament, that they point to Jesus. That is the part of the foundation. Uh, the, uh, The prophets point to Jesus and the apostles point back to Jesus. And then we're the living stones that are built into this new temple. And Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 14, when detached from Jesus, 
even when attached to Jesus, when not properly understood, um, is oftentimes confused with paganism. And I've heard a lot of well-meaning um, Old Testament scholars talk about how this story is the end of kind of paganism and child sacrifice. And uh, that is nonsense. Uh, this is about um, this is about prophecy, and it is pointing to Jesus all the way. And uh, I think that that is how um, this text needs to be approached. If you ever thought that um, Isaac actually belonged to Abraham, you won't understand what the heck is going on in this text. Isaac never belonged to Abraham. Abraham, uh, uh, Isaac was promised to Abraham by God, but Isaac was never Abraham's property. And I think that's oftentimes how we view our children, as extensions of ourselves. And, uh, and what we learn here is, is that, no, that's not what's going on. Isaac is part of a promise. Aaron, do you have anything you want to say? And then I'll continue to jump in. Uh, <laughs> to, to quote Justin Timberlake playing one of the Gibb brothers on the Barry Gibb talk show, no, no, Robin, I don't. <laughs> no, I do have some things I'd like to say. Uh, I think it's right. This, so this text at face value is kind of problematic and it's the kind of thing where if you did trigger warnings you might do one just because it is a graphic text that's sort of horrific to read about abraham taking his son and isaac being sort of you kind of this clueless dope sure dad let's go on a hike and then at the end uh you know tying up his son and it's just it's fascinating because isaac doesn't say anything he doesn't protest he doesn't struggle so i think there is a sense in which you need to read this not as this horrific account of something bad that almost happens and worry about Isaac's pretty significant therapy bills that would come later in life. I think you got to see this as an illustration, Jake, as you said, a prophecy. There's like, look at it as you would read a poem or look at a stained glass window and sort of say, like, what is happening and what is God doing here? And what is, what is this pointing to? Everything in the scripture happens on multiple levels. And I think the level you have to look at here is what seed is being planted for us that will then grow into a tree and ripen into fruit in the person and work of Christ? It's, it's, you know, there's one way to look at this, which is to just set it in its context when it happened. But I think as Christians, we know, as Jesus says, everything points to him. And this story, you know, so well, clearly, I need to look at it in that uh, situation as well. I think, I think, even setting it in its context, like so, if you go back to what I had said about um, Isaac being a promise, you know what I mean? They, I mean, these people were beyond childbearing age, right? And uh, and you know, and you go back to uh, Genesis thirteen, uh, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteous. He didn't believe in an abstract kind of thing called God. No, um, Abraham believed God very specifically, and specifically a God who then would have to be the one who raises the dead. And mm. this is the God that we're actually talking about in the Bible. We are not talking about an abstraction. We're talking about a living God who raises the dead. And so Abraham, as he takes Isaac up, knows that whatever promise is coming through this child, and, mm -hmm. uh, and that therefore he will have to raise the dead. Now, the location of this is all very, very important too when we begin to think about prophecy. And Aaron, do you want to say anything about the location of where yeah, they're going? I mean, this, you can visit this location today. If you can get up there, security is tight. But this is the Dome of the Rock where it is now. Mm -hmm. This is the place where on Mount Zion, the Mount of the Temple in Jerusalem, it's also the place that 
rock, which you can't really usually get in and see because it's in the Dome of the Rock. That is the place historically where this event took place. And it's also the point on the Temple Mount where the Holy of Holies was. I mean, this is ground zero for everything important that ever happened. Uh, and and there's some Jewish tradition that says this is where the where Adam was created. So anyways, yeah, go ahead. And there's a perfect parallel line when you're right there between where Jesus ascended and then also um, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It's, I mean, it's a yep. very powerful, powerful thing that's going on here. And Abraham is taking uh, his son, his only son, up and Abe, Isaac is like got wood on his back. I mean, this is all pointy. This is prophecy. And he yep. says, you know, he's like, hey, uh, father. Um, and he's like, here I am, son. And the fire and the wood are here. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham says, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walk together. And I'm sure that was an awkward walk, maybe. Um, <laughs> it could have also been a walk filled with a lot of hope. And, uh, and to the fact that God is the one who raises the dead. And, uh, and the truth is, is that what this ultimately points to, because the lamb that's caught in the thicket, uh, it's not a lamb, it's a ram, but the same thicket that would have been used to make the crown of thorns over Jesus' head. Mm -hmm. um, it's the same word there. And God does provide, and uh, the Lord shall provide, and he has provided in Abraham's greater son, uh, who would uh, go and take the wood on his back, but this time there'd be no stopping it. And uh, and to demonstrate that God is the one who raises the dead. Yep. Uh, yeah, there, it's interesting. We've been walking with Abraham for a while through the story, and we've seen how even though God made all these promises to Abraham, there were times in which Abraham took matters into his own hands and didn't quite fully trust God. <laughs> uh, the fact that he had a child at Sarah's prompting with Sarah's maid, Hagar, and they had the son Ishmael. There's another time in the story of Abraham where we learn that he's appointed an heir for his estate named Eliezer of Damascus. And um, because even though God had promised he would have a child and many descendants, ultimately, uh, just in case, hedging his bets, he appointed somebody to be the heir of his property. And yet now, kind of for the first time, you hear God giving a call to Abraham and he doesn't try to take matters into his own hands. It's this incredible trust. And that's, I think, what strikes me is the way he says, as we've already talked about, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Because I guess at this point, now having conceived this child with Sarah when they were in their 90s, he's maybe finally come around to the idea that God actually can do the impossible because that yeah. was impossible. That is a miracle on the order of a resurrection from the dead, taking two people in their 90s and having them uh, bear a child. Yeah. Um, so and it's it's a fascinating story. It's an interesting too. So uh, I was telling you about this before we started recording, but we do a joint study with the, the local synagogue and we were studying this particular text and uh, the rabbi, I, you know, I don't, you know, he was kind of, he, he made the point, he said in the Midrash, so in, your, in, in most Western people's mind's eye, they picture Isaac as nine or maybe like 13. And uh, he made the point that in the Midrash, um, Isaac is actually 32. 
And, mm-hmm. uh, and when the, the rabbi told me this, I just wanted to say, repent and believe the gospel. And, uh, because it's the yeah. age, who else was in their early 30s when they died? Yeah. Jesus. At, and so, because like I, yeah. I had been tying it all in. And he was like, oh, that's really interesting because the Midrash teaches that Isaac was 32 as well. And I was like, bro. So yeah. anyway. Um, but but I think, uh, yeah, th- there's some things here just to say, like how this connects with people in your congregation. I think... Um, you want to be careful at projecting yourself into the text too much, but at the same time, the text does have to connect with people's lives. And I think everybody can relate to being in a situation like Abraham is here where you're trusting God, but you have no idea how it's going to work out. And each step he takes up the mountain, he's trusting God, but has no idea how it's going to work out. And I think um, uh, there's something really, really uh, powerful about that. Uh, And... Um, I think the other thing you got to see here is that the, the, I think one of the main things you can say in the story is that God does provide. And mm. here he provides this ram uh, because, um, because of his faithfulness. And, and he will provide for us and for you and for your congregation. You won't see how until the ram is right there in front of you caught in the thorns, but he will provide. Yeah, and I think, well, that's, that's, a, very, that's a very important point because it keeps what God provides the main thing. You know, I think so often, especially in America, we think of God as our like giant sky fairy who's there to provide for like just simply my uh, temporal needs. But really what this story reminds us is that God has the big picture in mind Mm -hmm. and he has been faithful to his promises um, in the big needs and that is your eternal life and uh, your salvation. And uh, this is what Isaac points to. And so God has provided for you as well. Um, in 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 the work of his son Jesus, completely yeah. and totally. Yeah, and I think that's that's so key to mention because I think there is this idea that many people struggle with is that we have to be good enough for God and we have to sacrifice for God and we have to, you know, get a bunch of merit badges to keep God happy. And I think what this story shows, it's interesting because there is no greater sacrifice than Abraham could have given to show God how mm. much he is devoted to him than his own son. Yeah. And uh, and here, God says, no, I don't want that. I don't need that, in a sense, and actually provides a ram. And I think that's key, because many of us think we know what God wants. We think we like to be martyrs. We like to give things up. We like to think that we're doing something for God. And over and over in the scriptures, God says, no, you don't need to do stuff for me. Like, I'm going to do this. Uh, and ultimately in Christ, that's what he does. So I think this passage, yeah, clearly for your people, if your congregation leaves this leaves church this Sunday not knowing that this whole story is about Christ and what God has done for us is not what we, we provide for God, then you've kind of missed the main point of the story. <clears throat> Well, and then that, I mean, that really moves us into Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 23 in this particular section of uh, St. Paul's epistle to the Romans. This is a very profound, and St. Paul talks about this very thing here. This is what he's trying to articulate. Not what you do for God, but um, actually quite the contrary, what you do as a result of God doing it all for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is Paul answering the charge 
uh, of, are you saying that because of what Jesus has done, we don't have to do anything? Are you saying, Paul, that because the law has been fulfilled in Christ and because of the grace that we have in Christ, we can do whatever we want? So this is the charge of antinomianism. We talked about this some last week, and this is Paul continuing his discussion because this is what always people were worried about with Paul. Are you letting people get away with anything? Are you basically letting them, uh, you know, uh, uh, just get away with murder? You're giving away the store here, Paul. You can't do that. People are going to take advantage of you. You, mm-hmm. you, can't, you can't let people think that the gospel is 100% true, just 90%. Then they got to do 10%, 5%. They got to do something. And this is what a lot, of, a lot of Christians imply or explicitly teach still today. And so Paul is trying to say, no, we have a completely different... Holiness still matters, and righteousness still matters, but you're looking at it the wrong way. And what Paul is saying here is the old way of looking at it is that human beings are free to make choices. You used to be free and you made bad choices. And now you're free still, you have free will, and now you need to make good choices. And, um, the, and the, there's an assumption too that then the preacher's job is just tell people, don't make bad choices, make good choices. And people then have the strength, will, and agency to do it. And Paul says, uh-uh. Uh, we says, do not have free will. You don't. Yeah, it basically says you were you were you can't you you're not free. You're a, you're a, as Bob Dylan said. Uh, you got to serve somebody, and um, you're either going to be as he says here a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. You're going to be compelled to do one thing or compelled to do another. So it's a much profounder view of people. He sees people as inherently unfree. Um, and we can talk about the freedom of a Christian and what that means to be free in Christ, because some people may be wondering, what do you say about that? But the 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 freedom of a Christian comes from having been uh, forgiven totally, loved totally, and now empowered by the Holy Spirit to do something that you can't but help. You can't help but do it. You have to do it. You're compelled to do it. Um, Luther summed this up famously. He said, the law says do this and it is never done. Uh, and But the... Grace says, believe in this, and everything is already done. And once a heart has received that, it becomes, as Paul says uh, in this passage, a heart that um, is a slave. It has what he calls obedience from the heart. Uh, Because there's some, if you just preach obedience, you can get it from Christians, but they won't want to do it necessarily. And we all have been there. We've all done the Bible. We've all opened the, the Bible and read a chapter because we thought it would make God happy, and you didn't pay attention to a single word you're reading, and it was just dry as dust. We've all gone to church and found it just because we felt like we had to, or somebody would notice we weren't there, we'd get in trouble with them and with God. And so you go and you have a bad attitude, you don't get anything out of it. That's obedience, but not from the heart. And actually, Jesus would call those things like whitewashed tombs, like that's that's yeah. faking it. Yeah. And what Paul is talking about here is some kind of interior renovation of the heart that creates somebody who then is obedient to uh, to God from the heart. Not it, it, You know as a Christian, if you do something because it's the right thing, but you really don't want to do it, that may be a good thing in terms of, yes, it's you know, you may get rewarded among your fellow human beings for that, but in terms of is that a righteous act that counts for God? No, yeah. because you really didn't want to do it, and it wasn't really out of love for God or for your human being, fellow human beings. Yeah, the, I, yeah, this is exact. That's exactly right. What what Paul is talking here, essentially, you want to boil it down to: what are you captivated by? 
Hmm. You know, and so uh, this is this is another word for obedience. It's not like so much like doing things. It's the idea here is like, what are you captivated by? Um, colleague Kyle Tomlin, who like uses an illustration here of um, kind of in the cartoons, like the old Tom and Jerry cartoons, like being hypnotized. You know what I mean? Like, what are you captivated? That's what that's the concept of obedience here. What has captivated you? Is it you doing your stuff? You know what I mean? And trying to make God happy or um, you being captivated by what Christ has done for you? And uh, that changes everything. You know, he goes, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater iniquity, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness for sanctification. And righteousness is found in in Abraham's greater son and what he has done, his obedience. So then that transforms everything. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. So what advantage did you then get from the things of which you are now ashamed? You know, the end of those things is death. But now that you've been freed from sin and enslaved to God, captivated by him, the advantage you get is sanctification because he's the one working in your life. The end is eternal life, you know, but the other, the wages of sin is death. And I think this is one of the things that Paul is getting at that you were hitting at. Even your good deeds um, are a tremendous problem. You know what I mean? When they are when they are done from a place of me trying to earn something. That's right. Uh, this is why in our collects we do pray so often that God would do something in our hearts, that God would yeah. make our hearts hearts that love God. Because a heart that loves God and is captivated by God will bear fruit uh, of righteousness, will have a life that looks like uh, holiness, uh, and uh, or at least more and more over time. But it's a work of God. Not Again, so many people, Christianity is like eating your broccoli. You don't like it, but you have to do it. I remember when in the office they made Kevin eat broccoli. He'd never eaten it before in his life, and because he'd never eaten it before, he just ate it from the stem end first. He didn't know you're supposed to start with the florets. And so, uh, and he he was just feeling compelled to eat it because he'd made a resolution. He tried it, he hated it, and he spit it all out, and he never ate broccoli again. And I think a lot of people feel like Christianity is the same way, like just be a good person and make good choices. And at certain point, that falls apart. And again, the, the understanding of the gospel is somebody who, ha- who, who has been moved from being a slave of sin to being a slave of righteousness. A slave is not making any choices about whether, and I realize in the American context, the word slave has problematic uh, historical connotations, and we're all talking about that now, and I'm sensitive to that, but I'm just quoting the text here. So, a slave does not have freedom in their first century Roman context to like do or not do something. They have to do something. So, um, the unfreeness of the human being is seen here, and Paul is saying, if you're asking whether or not I'm saying you can still sin or not because of the grace of the gospel, you've missed the whole point. You still think that human beings are free to do anything. You're either somebody who is who has been freed from the old and now is a slave to righteousness, or you're still back in that old situation. Now, there is here, we have to say, that simul justus et peccato, or this, the thing where Paul's speaking in black and white binary terms, you're either one thing or another. And you and I know, and Paul knows this as well, he's making an argument here, so there's some rhetorical devices happening, but um, he knows that you can be 
justified and a sinner, that we we are slaves to righteousness, but sometimes it still feels like we're slaves to sin. This is an ongoing process, and you want to make sure you acknowledge that with your congregation, that becoming a Christian doesn't flip a switch. Well, it does in some sense. You are now in the kingdom of light, 100%. But in terms of working that out over time in a human life, it feels much more mixed from day to day, and you have good days and bad days. But again, the good news is that you are fully covered in the work of Christ, no matter how your particular day may go. Yeah, let me read just for everybody. I see Jake got a book. He's got a quote. I'm excited. You're going to Art- read from Danielle Steele's latest novel. <laughs> Article 10 of the 39 Articles of Free Will. The condition of man after the fall of Adam is such that he cannot turn and prepare himself by his own natural strength and good works to faith and calling upon God. Wherefore, we have no power to do good works pleasant and acceptable to God without the grace of God by Christ preventing us, that we may preventing have a good will. Preventing us going before, yep. Yeah, that we may have a good will and working with us when we have that good will. Uh, and uh, that's just further illustrating this point. We're all, as Luther said, we're all asses being ridden. And uh, the truth is, is that you are either being, um, uh, you know, something has captivated us. And the point of the Christian life is, is that um, you need to get kind of the law out of your heart, what you're doing to, to make God happy, and get Christ in your heart and, uh, and put the law in your hands, you know, and so that your good works are for the sake of your neighbor. That's right. And Paul implies this in verse 14. He says, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace, mm-hmm. which he, what he's saying is there is if you are under the law, sin has dominion over you. Yep. It, mm-hmm. The more you put somebody under the law, the more they are going to feel compelled to rebel against it, to work against it, to struggle against the law. And it's this amazing thing. He says, because you're under grace... Because you have been forgiven, because the law has been canceled for you with all its demands, has been nailed to the cross, because of that, you are no longer under the, the dominion of sin. It's the, the, the work of Christ sort of seems to drain the power uh, from sin in your life. When you know that you're loved and accepted, uh, something happens. There's a change in that dynamic there, and, and Paul is talking yeah. about that there. So he, he again, are you saying we can do whatever we want because of the gospel, Paul? He kind of he does this jujitsu thing where it's like, no, you're not even understanding the question right or how people work. And and this is Paul this is one of his brilliant insights. So go well, preach the law, Jake. That's what we're saying. We've beat that horse. So all right, uh, okay. <laughs> Um, we've, no, we've I mean, it's, that there's, there, there's Wait, so much say to that? say here. Sorry, there's so much, there's so much to say here, but, uh, um, and then, so we begin to see then, uh, you know, it, if what Paul is saying here is you've died, you've died. It's no longer you who living, but Christ who lives in you. And then you begin to understand what, what, what Jesus is saying here, um, in Matthew chapter 10 verses 40 through 42, you know, he's already said, do not think that I've come to bring peace, but a sword. Um, basically, what he's saying there, a um, few verses up, as we talked about last week, I'm it. That's it. I'm not one of many. I'm not the top of the list. I am it. And then so, because he is it in your life, and he now has dominion over you, um, which is the grace of God, then whoever welcomes you, welcomes him. And whoever welcomes, you know, I mean, you begin to understand that lens. 
Yeah, yeah. So this is part of the long list of instructions and thoughts and wisdom and teaching that Jesus gives to the 12 apostles after he's He's sent them out. This happens in uh, verse 5 of chapter uh, 10 of Matthew's gospel. So as he's sending them out, he's given them all these instructions and things to be aware of. And here he's in, there's, when you're sent out into ministry, one can make the mistake thinking that it's about you and that your success or failure has something to do with you. And um, if you do a good job, it's because you're a good person. And if, if your ministry fails, then it's because you're a bad person and you didn't do it right and preach it right and live it right or whatever. Mm-hmm. And what Jesus here is saying is, no, this is not about you. This is about me. If they receive you, if they welcome you, they've welcomed me. And if they've welcomed me, they've welcomed the one who sent me, namely the Father. And so he's 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 freeing them from the burden of thinking that this is about them on some level and saying that really, no, you're just an extension of my ministry. If they've received you, they've received me. And the, you know, the converse of that, if they reject you, they haven't rejected you, they've rejected me. Um, And interestingly, in this wonderful sort of uh, display of imputation and also the wideness of God's mercy, he says, anyone who receives a prophet or a righteous person, which is what these apostles are going to be and to do, essentially, as they go out into ministry, then the one who receives them receives the reward of that person. So, it, it just if you are open to the work of God in your life, if you're a person who receives the messenger, uh, there's this spiritual benefit that gets applied to you. And there's something, I think, really cool and wonderful about that. Jesus has this way of speaking that sort of sounds like Zen koans, like uh, what's the sound of a one hand clapping or if a tree mm-hmm. falls in a forest. So he, he speaks sort of in this cryptic biblical language. But what he's saying is if you're going out in the villages and somebody welcomes you into their house, they receive a reward. They haven't been the prophet. They haven't been the righteous person. They just said, hey, come on in and have a snack. They showed some hospitality. They were open to receiving. And and just because of that openness and that reception, they receive a reward. And what is the reward? The reward is if if we're doing... So, for example, if we're doing our job right, the reward that they're giving getting is the comfort and the peace from knowing that God is for them. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, this is because this is what they're supposed to be delivering. Not Jesus is a list of other of things you need to do, you know, Jesus and then your life will be great. Just Jesus full stop. His gospel full stop. Your sins are forgiven full stop. You've been reconciled back to God full stop. Like that is the reward. You know, to know that, man, the ultimate judge, the one who can, uh, the one who has by all right the authority to decimate you, uh, doesn't, uh, but rather loves and forgives you and gives his life for you. Um, And that this just isn't like, come up with, but this is how it's always been, going all the way back to the book of Genesis. That is, that is good. That's, that is a great gift. So preacher don't, preacher, don't underestimate what you are doing. You're doing divine work, and you are giving people good news. Uh, and that is a reward uh, in a world of do, 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 in a world that somebody just sent me an article, my friend Rick Rush just sent me an article saying that uh, statistics show that Americans are unhappier than ever right now in over 55 years. And uh, I haven't read the article, it just came across, but like, I mean, the reward is 
um, be at peace. You may not be happy, but uh, you can have joy because God is for you in Jesus Christ. That's right. And uh, this is this is the message that the disciples are told to carry out into the world. And man, if you receive that, there is incredible reward, joy, peace, um, like a cup of cold water that Jesus talks about giving oh, to somebody man. on a hot summer day. That makes sense. Like that makes June, sense uh, when you're preaching this message. In, so go out there and the, preach it. Yeah. In the parched world of dew, we all could use a cup of cold gospel water. <laughs> a cup of cold done. Yeah, that's right. Amen. And I think that's where we're at with this podcast. Done. <laughs> we'll see you next week, po- folks. Keep keep preaching. God bless. Thanks for listening to Same Old Song, and we hope you found some nuggets that will be helpful either in your preaching or just in your life. If you liked what you heard, we would love it if you could leave a rating or review on iTunes. Dave's all will be sad if you don't. We'd like to thank the Narrativo Group for audio production. Keep that Bible by your bedside, ready to rock and roll.